it's a responsibility that is now binding on me because Paul under Christ has said to do it. And yet it's passive. It's a passive imperative. It's a command, but it's something that I can't do to myself. It's something that I have to, as far as I'm concerned, not stop from happening. In other words, it seems as though God, the Spirit, is constantly wanting to do whatever this is with me, and I'm responsible for it to happen, but I don't make it happen. That's too complicated. It's really not. It's how God said it. It's the passive imperative. So God issues the command, and we then respond to God's instruction by obeying it. We choose to say, creator, creature, I obey, I obey him because I'm the creature and he's in charge. So I have to bring a certain attitude that if I don't bring a certain attitude to my creator, I will be in sin. I will be sinful toward him. I do not believe there's common ground between arrogance or, or pride and humility. I don't think, I don't think there's a, a, a neutral ground. I don't think you can go from, from pride over here to a, a, a safe spot that doesn't take you to humility. I think it's one or the other. I don't even think it's really a continuum. It's one or the other. It's digital. I'm either arrogant and not submitting to God or I'm humbling myself before him. And, don't, and I, it may be, I may be wrong. There may be levels of humility, but let's don't think that way. Don't think you're there enough until you're there. But see, if we're not humbling ourselves before God, then we're saying that it's about us. We're saying we're in his place. And so that arrogance, that not submitting to God, which is arrogance, will always shut down your spiritual life. It is sin, and we're told in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit in a, in a context of all personal sins. Personal sin shuts this ministry of God down. And it's God's grace and it's his sovereign will that it's arranged this way that we're responsible to him to humble ourselves before him but you have to bring this attitude of humility or else you're immediately sinful toward God and that's really the I think this is the root sin of all sin is we see Satan doing it in in his fall as he's going to 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 assert himself over God when I'm not willing to say at any moment not my will but your will be done I found my problem. I found the root sin that's going to give way to the other. It's going to lead to the other things that we all have our tendencies and we give into and in, in our individual tendencies toward lust. Everybody lusts. Everybody's got their weaknesses. Their sin nature is calling them somehow. Church folks very often don't suffer from the same types of lust that uh, non-church folks suffer from. But everyone's wired a little differently, but we're all broken. And it all comes back to, I'm good, I'm right, it's about me. And we disregard our creator. So we have to bring this attitude of humility. And with that comes an active faith. If you want to be uh, drawn near to God, uh, I mean, if you want God to draw near to you, you have to draw near to him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You must, the one that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so there is in this, attitude with which I approach my creator, a belief, a, a trust in him. And I believe that um, this is attitudinal. This is part of the, just the general approach. Do you know what attitude means? We talk about it a lot. I learned it as a teenager or preteen. Hey, you've got a problem with your attitude. And so it became this concept, this abstract concept. It's really a neat thought. Attitude means direction, the orientation you're moving on. 
if this is where the car is supposed to be, but your car is out of alignment and you're not watching closely and you start to kind of go this way, you've, got, you've adopted the wrong attitude for your vehicle's uh, uh, perambulation. You're going the wrong way and it's in the wrong direction. It's an orientation problem. And that's what I mean. I'm not talking about going through this, some sort of mechanical process to, okay, first I'm going to humble myself and then uh, I'm going to believe and then, and then I'm going to find the next step to push the button to get spiritual. I'm saying that if I'm not humbling myself before God, I'm arrogant. So right now I'm sinful. And, and you don't come to God with sin except to confess it you stop that and you confess it and he cleans you up. So I'm saying that uh, to approach God and walk with him, there's a constant expectation of humility and faith. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, but let's don't over-rotate on it. I think to do this, you have to remove all the obstacles. That's personal sin. That's the distractions. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. We remove whatever entangles us and stops our forward motion. And then we focus our attention on the word. Now, this is really important because I don't think Christian spirituality happens as just this uh, mystical emptying of self. Satan's mysticism, Satan's spirituality is mysticism, and it is the emptying of self so that you can just be, you know, unified with the great other. That's a satanic deception. What we actually need to do is not empty ourselves of self so that when we're filled with, with other, we need to empty ourselves of our regard for self so that we can focus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. And how we do that, he's provided us very graciously, his word. And this introduces other commands when you pay attention to his word. And so when you read in Colossians 3, put on a heart of compassion, and you think, okay, I think I understand what that means. I think I've, I've got a picture in my mind, a concept of, of an attitude that I'll adopt. Now I'm responsible because the word of God told me that. And now I'm walking with him with a conscience that says I'm supposed to be compassionate toward other people in the specific way he says, for example, Colossians 3. So we focus our attention on the word and it introduces other commands and we choose to obey the commands while depending on the spirit of God for the ability to do so. And this is that sort of latent faith that needs to kind of go all the time. I always need to rest my faith in God or I'm saying something that I don't really want to say. If I'm not trusting God, if I'm not in, in, a, in a, a sort of a constant sense, I'm not saying that I'm thinking the thought constantly, but if I'm not generally approaching life where I'm reposing myself and trusting in him as I move forward, then I'm basically saying he's not trustworthy or he's irrelevant to what I'm doing. And then God's not involved. It's not about him anymore. I'm not trusting him to move forward in what I'm doing uh, one way or the other. I'm just, you know, just doing my own thing. And I think that's where faith really comes in, where the word tells me, trust me. The word says, is God saying, trust me from, from beginning to end. And so I trust him. And so I'm moving forward as I trust him in obedience. And let's be careful to remember that without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. This is the work of the spirit in me to understand the word, to want the word, to obey the word. Okay. And, and to, and that's the filling of the spirit. He's using that word in me to characterize me. And so I'm just saying you're a machine, if you will, don't, don't over rotate on this either, but you, you could picture yourself as a, as a, somebody designed you're a designed thing by God for a certain input that if you get the right input, then you get the right process and the right outputs. 
That's you are made for the word. You bring it in, you believe it, you do what you're supposed to do with it, and you get the fruit of the Spirit as the output. And that is the life that listens to God in humility, believes what he says, and chooses to do it. Now, again, if you take the Holy Spirit out of this, the dependence on Christ, the abiding in him, you're not talking about Christian spirituality anymore. We're talking about legalism. We're talking about what you and I can do in the energy of the flesh. And I believe that everyone here is capable of pulling off something that looks really good to me. Here's the bad news about that. I'm not the one judging you. I'm not the one making the assessment. You're not really supposed to be worried about what I think. You're supposed to be worried about what I think about Christ. You're supposed to be bearing witness in my life for my spiritual life to encourage me to walk with my Savior. And that I'm supposed to be doing that for you. It's not about us we're all directing each other to him but see this this to me is really important to understand what it means that the word of christ would richly dwell within you and if and and i've been challenged on this well dave you're adding things to spirituality that the bible doesn't say if you commit personal sin in ephesians chapter 4 you're grieving the holy spirit there's something going on about a rejection of the word in 1 Thessalonians 5 called quenching the Holy Spirit. And I think we're talking about arresting the work of the Spirit in us, the filling of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to conclude is personal sin has a, the, the Holy Spirit's holy. He doesn't want, he doesn't own my sin. He doesn't sponsor my sin. He doesn't empower my sin. And yet I commit personal sins. When I'm in a, in a frame of sin, I'm not walking by the Spirit. That's Ephesians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not be able at all to fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's very explicit in Greek. So what I'm trying to say is that if I'm not submissive to God, I'm arrogant. That's a sin that's going to knock me out of spirituality. It's baseline. Basic Christian modus operandi has to be humility before God, and it's a constant attitude. Well, um, don't say David Roseland thinks there's three steps to spirituality. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what we have to do is obey the command to be filled by the Spirit and therefore let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that must mean that I obey what it says, that I listen and I believe and I do what He says. And if, I, if the Word occurs to me, if something that God has told me in my conscience that we're learning tonight is, is apparent, like, hey, you should be in the Word and you need to be saturated with it. And I, to tomorrow, I'm like, well, I, I know I should be in the Word, but I don't want to be. And I reject that effect of the Spirit using the Word to prompt me. Am I being filled by the Spirit? No. I'm a rank-and-file American Christian walking in darkness, not walking in the light as he himself is in the light. All right, so um, I just wanted to review that paradigm with you from Ephesians 5.18 because I think it is so very important. And now I want to talk about parents, fathers, in Ephesians 6, verse 4. We looked at this first hour on Sunday, and that's kind of what we're doing. This, this series is also happening um, uh, at the 9 o'clock service on Sunday, and I do try to overlap enough, if you can't make it then, um, where it, it'll be effective for both, if you're there and if you're not there. Um, so don't worry about it. If you want to get the whole thing, definitely get the, the recordings. But um, fathers, he says, do not provoke to anger, par or gizo, your children. Do not provoke your children to anger, but rather, strong contrastive but, Allah, here, bring up or rear or nourish, ektrefo, them. And the instruction or training, the paideia, 
and the corrective discipline, my translation today, nuthesia of the Lord. Now, my New American Standard puts these two nouns, paideia and nuthesia, as the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's okay, too. And I want to spend a little bit of time tonight explaining what these words mean. Those of you who are out of your parents' home um, or out of the paideia phase where you're being trained to tie your shoes and uh, not speak back disrespectfully to your parents, if you're beyond that phase of training and you're standing as an adult, even in your parents' household, this is really important for you because you probably don't have children to do this with yet. So this is equipping phase. Those of you who have friends uh, that you're not doing this either, training children in the home, but you um, have loved ones and family members, this is effective for you because you now can become equipped to bring a word of encouragement and even at times a word of warning or admonishment, as we'll see tonight, for parents who, in the thick of things, may, may not be thinking this way. And remember, if you're going to take someone to Ephesians 6.4 and what fathers are responsible for and, and parents are responsible for, Take them to the whole thing. Be filled by the Spirit with the result that you submit to one another in Ephesians 5.21. And the way parents submit their preferences, their comforts, and disregard themselves in order to elevate their children is in this verse. This is the fulfillment of the command to be filled by the Spirit in how we parent, in other words. And it's important enough for me that you really could reproduce this that I'm going to keep saying that. 5.18 drives 6.4. Be filled by the Spirit. This is how that looks as a father or a mother in the home. We're told what not to do. We're told what to do. And they're very explicit commands. What happens when God issues me a command and I choose not to obey it? What would I call that? I think that is one guarantee that I found a sin that I've got to deal with. Now, I think sin is that which transgresses God's perfect righteousness. But when God says, this is what I want, and then I say, no, okay, my arrogance has just transgressed his righteousness, and it's a really explicit way. So I believe when you find commands in Scripture, especially from the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles, um, we're talking about what the Lord Jesus Christ has explicitly commanded his church. And so this is binding upon us in a very special way. And, and so what does this look like? Be filled by the Spirit. You couldn't command anyone to do that before the day of Pentecost. No one could be commanded to be filled by the Spirit because that's a new ministry the Spirit is doing in all believers. But, but now we have the Spirit. He commands that we be filled by the Spirit, and now He commands us to, to train our children this way. The first thing you want to be careful about is provoking them to anger. And we looked, about, we looked at anger a lot on Sunday. What does this mean to provoke someone to anger? First of all, it's a sin. We've addressed that this is where you lead someone to sin. And then we talked about what it is and what it's not. One thing it is absolutely not is that you insist on righteousness for God's sake, before God, before him and his power. And little Jimmy doesn't like that. And so he gets angry because you say that's wrong. We need to do what's right. This is not saying you're wrong for provoking your child to anger because in arrogance and rebellion against God, he gets angry. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about being careful to preserve certain outcomes in how you train your children. And one of the things you want to avoid is this problem of anger. Because, the way I understand it, anger is a very easily um, reinforced bad habit 
that stops all beneficial thinking. <laughs> it's a bad habit that we get into, and we, we want to train the children not to get into this habit. So we don't provoke them to anger. Now, we get some insight from Colossians chapter 3. Same concept, different language. Fathers, do not exasperate, provoke, or irritate. Different word, erethizo, your children. Do not erethizo your children so that they will not become discouraged. Athumeo. That I did a little looking on athumeo. They won't be discouraged. Well, what does that mean? Well, I know what it means to be discouraged. Well, why do we translate it that way is David Roseland's question. Why does, why does it say discouraged for athumeo? I Thumeo means to be passionate or, or, or feel something intensely. We have a word for that that we use that's very close to what they, they mean, and it's spirit. This has to do with breaking someone's spirit, with putting out the fire. Athumeo means to, to extinguish them. And, and you don't want to do that to your children by making choices, saying things, doing things to them that shut down their love of life, their enjoyment of the process. See, because here's the problem. We've all been there. We've all been through it. We've all seen the show five times. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see that. Shut up. And the little kid, he's just getting here for the first time. And you have to take stock and think. I remember being eight. I kind of remember. I, can't, I try to imagine what it's like to be eight need to be careful about this process and be encouraging and not discouraging as they fumble around. Ah, come on, you didn't know. How many times I got to show you to tie your shoe? And that has an effect, and that has a, de- a degenerative effect over time. You put out the fire. And so it's saying, think about what you're going for with the kid. You want this kid to grow. You want, him to, you want to train him up according to his way in Proverbs 22. Train up, train up a child according to his way or actually consecrate him according to his way. Whatever that means, it's saying you need to take stock in what you're dealing with and, and facilitate what God is actually doing. So you don't want to discourage your children or to, give them, you know, to, to um, dishearten them as another common translation for athumeo. And so when you talk about it this way, uh, at least in Colossians 3, Paul is saying you have to be careful about what steps you take because of the effects they're going to have and you need to think ahead think ahead don't do this so that they not have that and that's the way to think the choice of how i'm going to use my words think about a father's power a father's power for how he will influence the thinking of his daughter about herself think about that power when we read first peter three and uh, and and Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, for she's a woman, she's a weaker vessel. And so you, you, you're careful, and you, the, the gentleman verse of 1 Peter. Okay, so that's for husbands and wives. Well, let's take that to fathers, massive authority differential now, power differential. Fathers to their daughters. Think about what a father could do in terms of disheartening, discouraging, destroying that fire of what that girl is supposed to be by how he speaks to her. We can see there's obvious application here for thinking, okay, this is what I want, but I'm going to have to make this choice now for how I'm going to get there because I want to be careful about the outcome. Now, can you control 
what happens. Can you control the effects? You can't control them. But you can set things up to get the effect that you want. It's good marksmanship. Let's put it on the rifle range. Everything gets resolved out there. Just, let's just put it in the rifle range. When you set up a shot and you're going to shoot long-range shooting or short-range shooting, you have to do everything before you pull the trigger because you know what happens after you pull the trigger? You can do nothing. It's done. So before you, you take your shot, you set it all up. You get everything lined up. You make sure everything's just right. You control your breath. You control your squeeze. And you barely pull that trigger and get a perfect shot. But only because you did everything before the trigger was pulled. This is a wonderful Eastern Connecticut illustration. It won't play so well in Hartford, but it really works well here in Southeastern Connecticut. See, the point I'm trying to say is, look at what he's, he's doing. He's saying, watch what you say and how you say it because of the effect that it's going to have. And that means being a father or mother is a thinking game. It's, a, it, it, it's now really important to think in terms of the effects I'm going to have. And you know what? Sometimes you miss the target big time. Sometimes it's, it's awful. You're a horrible marksman. Okay, and, and when, you make, when you have a bad day at the range, you got to go back to your fundamentals and think it through. Uh, you, get, you get this going and you discourage your child. You got to go confess that because you disobeyed a command. I didn't think ahead. I acted in anger, which makes me what? Anger makes us stupid. We could all say it together. All God's people know that anger makes us stupid. All the blood goes into our fight or flight response and all that wonderful brain cell stuff is useless. Ugh, smash. The Hulk is stupid for those that know what that's about. But he's great, but he's stupid. Anger makes you stupid. So, so we want to think about the outcomes we want to have and that's, he's got a specific statement about provoking. Now I looked up this word erethizo to provoke your child to anger here. Um, provoke or irritate. My Bible says exasperate. That's a great word. What's exasperate? It has to do with how you breathe. It's when someone says, ah, exasperate. That's what the word literally means in English, to exaspire, to, 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 ex, to exhale in, in exasperation. Um, this word means um, it's used in Koine Greek whenever somebody is going to feel that there's a challenge that they have to step up to, like they're being provoked. That, that's the idea of provocation or irritation. And so it doesn't mean that you're attacking them. It means that you're in a negative way challenging them and that, that, that just disheartens them. And so we don't want to have that outcome. We want to see the kids thrive and grow and be strengthened. You never want to be the trainer. Uh, think about in, 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 a, in a, um, a strength training program. You're the trainer and the person comes to you and you're supposed to show them how to lift uh, what weights when so that they get a, a good a strength program going. You don't want to be that trainer that causes the shoulder injury. You, wanna, you don't want to be that trainer that it's your fault that you gave bad advice or you set the person up for failure and then they're injured for life and they can't ever perform. See the, see the responsibility that's put on a trainer, right? See that awesome responsibility? That's what we're talking about here with being a trainer of children, a father and a mother. And so we can all feel the, 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 the weight, I hope, of that idea. 
So back to Ephesians 6, 4, don't provoke them to anger. It could mean to irritate them. It's a general statement. It's a general statement. It could mean um, that this is the goal that I have, or it could mean that I'm not checking my own anger. Remember I said last time, anger flashes on anger. When I see you angry at me, guess what? Well, who are you to be angry at me? And then I'm angry at you because you're angry at me. And we never, we never figured out what we're talking about. Well, why are you screaming? Well, you're screaming. Oh, well, that's stupid. That's how guys at work are. That's not how it works with men and women. That's not how it works with women and women. But guess what? When we provoke our children to anger, by our anger, by our anger, we're disobedient to God. And when you want to say, wait a second, this whole thing is about how we serve God. We're uh, being filled by the Spirit, and we're submitting to God and how we train our children. So let's talk about the positive. We talk about what's negative. Let's talk about what's positive. Rear, bring up, nourish. I love the word nourish to translate ektrefo. And uh, the best scholarly lexicon for Koine Greek is the Bauer, Donker, Arndt Gingrich lexicon, uh, third edition. And um, they put this as a key notion of this word. And I, I always check them against uh, various nouns or, or verbs. But to nourish this, I, this means that when, when someone grows up, a plant or an animal or a person, they had to be fed the right stuff. You put in food and water, you get a plant, you get a person, you get a, you get a cow, whatever. And so it's a word picture to say what is involved in the person's elevation and the person's rearing, the person's growing up. And so it's set up here as a command. And then he gives you two nouns that are of the Lord. Two nouns, two things that are of the Lord and they're synonyms. They're synonyms. They are almost uh, identical in meaning, but there's enough of a nuance that we could actually talk about it. You might not be surprised to know that I looked every instance of both of these nouns up in their noun form and their verb form in the New Testament, and I'm ready now to read you the list of both of those. That'll be about 60 different verses 64, 65 different verses, and then we'll all be very edified from having read 60 verses of Scripture in less than 20 minutes. Um, Actually, I don't think we'll get through all of them, but I do want to show you what's going on with these two words. The first is paideia. Paideia. The paideon is the child in training. It's, It's the idea that little bottoms get spankings when they need spankings. Paideia, the training necessary for little children to be ready to go to the tutor, to the more adult level of training to become uh, in their maturity, in their um, uh, majority, we say. So that's the instruction training of children for basic life skills like respect for authority. The corrective discipline word, nuthesia, I've translated corrective discipline. You could also call it warning or admonishment. And uh, this is where you get the word for nuthetic counseling. Just wondering, anybody ever heard of nuthetic counseling? Uh-huh. Uh, it's actually a beautiful thing. There's a lot to recommend it. There are th- certain aspects of it in terms of its underlying Reformed theology that I could quibble with. But the idea of saying, okay, I understand you have a problem, that you're, uh, you're having these symptoms of, of mental breakdown. Let's talk about what, how your relationship with God is going. And then as soon as the person starts saying, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just no good. Well, instead of saying, oh, no, you're good. Look at you. Instead of that, which we all do. The euthetic counselor says, well, what do you mean you're no good? 
What, what, exa- what exactly is wrong with you? Well, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a bad father. Oh, well, why? <laughs> why are you a bad father? And the neuthetic counselor is co- going, trying to help the person articulate where their sin problem has them broken down with God. Because guess what we know about everybody on earth drawing breath? Sin nature, probably giving into it. And so the, it's like a no-brainer for a Christian that believes in sin. Well, yeah, um, let's go find what, what do you mean you're a bad father? What would you do wrong? And, the, and that's how Neuthetic Counseling goes. Jay Adams has popularized it. It doesn't mean that here, but that's the idea. Neuthetic Counseling is a Christian effort to say, Mental problems a lot of times are, 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 have sin at their root. And let's go figure out what the sin problem is and deal with that and tell the truth. And, uh, and you can read Jay Adams' books, and they're a lot of times very entertaining. Um, in Luke 23.16, though, this word for paideia, to train a child, is used of uh, Jesus. Therefore, I will punish him and release him is how... Um, the Romans are talking about treating our Savior. And when you want to say what they did to him, scourging him, skinning him alive with the lictor's whip, if that's a little spanking, uh, no. <laughs> so this is a euphemistic use. This is how you would use, he's, I will give it, we'll spank him and, and move him on. But he's talking about the, the thing that happened to Jesus in terms of his scourging. Um, uh, let's see. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 23, Pilate summoned the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. Behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charge which you make, make against him, nor has Herod, no, nor is Herod, for, this, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish Piduo him and release him. I'll give him a spanking. I'll, it's, like, it's a way of saying I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slap him on the wrist and not crucify him. Now, what he does by scourging him, uh, see how language works? The word means what, what you would do for child training. The way Pilate uses it is for what Jesus received by the Roman lictor's whip. So what, what does the word mean? Well, it means how the, how the person uses it. He's calling that action he does to Jesus uh, just a little child training, just a little, just a little spanking. Luke 23, and he said to them a third time, why, what evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt de- demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So he doesn't deserve death, but he is a troublemaker and we'll, we'll give him a good thrashing. And you could say that about spanking little kids. I give him a good thrashing. What Pilate does to Jesus is unthinkable to us in terms of the Roman scourge. In Acts chapter 7, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. Come on. Well, the word doesn't mean spanked here. Moses was spanked in the, in the learning of Egypt. It means child training. It means, ed- and so we call it education. This is a very flexible thing, this, this uh, business of language. But it, it is, uh, fits into this idea of what children receive. And um, remember, this is what we're supposed to raise our children in, the paideia of the Lord. Paul says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, 
brought up in this city, educated in Gamaliel, a common thing, the way Luke uses paideia in the mouths of other people. So apparently it's a common use of this word to say, this is how I was trained. I go back to my school years and I think I talk about little child training. It's how you speak about uh, your, your school days in Greek. First Corinthians 11, but when, when we are judged, we are paiduo, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we'll not be condemned along with the world. This is the self-judgment that Paul warns about in the Lord's table. And he says, there's a judgment if you don't judge yourself. But when we're judged, it's training. It's child training because we have a father who's training us. So what am I trying to say? I'm saying that the word means what it means as the author uses it. And you got to read it in context to understand how that works. But we get this picture of what this word does. And that's, by the way, what a dictionary is. The dictionary is only someone taking all the examples of how somebody uses something and then trying to figure out what's the general gist of how that's used. And then sometimes there's multiple um, ways it's used. I think you can see that this is our father treating us like beloved children, even when we are weak and sickly and a number sleep. In 1 Corinthians 11, in other words, the paiduo, the, the child training and discipline, the often spankings from our father uh, can hurt a lot. And we can sickly a number of sleep in this context is talking about that. In 2 Corinthians 6, 9, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death. This sounds like more, more like what Pilate's doing when you read it in context that Paul's talking about his sufferings. He says, yeah, we're punished, but not, not put to death. He's been beaten by the, by the Jews multiple times. He's got, he's got a really nasty scarred up back from all the lashings he's received, from all the suffering that he's been through. We've been punished. We've been paiduo. And so he's, he uses that as child training. I think um, it's good to look at this because it seems like a pretty light word to use in such a heavy context like with Jesus' sufferings uh, under Pilate. In Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. That's our verse. But bring them up in the paideia, in the, the child rearing, the child corrective training of the Lord. And so it'd be fine to translate that discipline. But this is how you train little children. In other words, it's a general term for the right type of, of educational work to bring about the necessary training. And it could refer to scourging someone uh, with a Roman lictor's whip, but it doesn't mean that here with children. <laughs> okay. I wonder, and I try to get into the, to the Greek-speaking Roman person's mind in the first century, what uh, do they hear, with, based on all these different uses of this word, when they hear the paideia of the Lord? I think they think of corporal punishment, probably. I think they think there's a physical basis for this word that, that then becomes a general sense that you use. The training a child, we all, we all know what that is. I also think that the next word probably is a corporal. When you say nuthesia, I don't think it, the Roman mind thinks that's, with a, that's, that's spanking. I think it means warning or correction, admonishment. Ephesians 6, 4. 1 Timothy 1, we're almost done with the New Testament. Among all these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be paiduo, they will be trained or taught not to blaspheme. Um, that is a euphemistic use of this word. When you turn these brothers who are walking in darkness by their lifestyles and denying the gospel over to Satan, and you only do that to Christians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, when you do this to brothers and you, and you have to turn them over to Satan, where outside the church where Satan is, instead of fellowship with the church where Satan is not, um, they're going to be taught, pi duo, that's what a father does for his children. 
not to blaspheme. And it's a horrible thought to think that this is what's necessary for these men. But um, apparently, the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Spirit knows exactly what's necessary. So in in uh, first, sorry, Second uh, Timothy two twenty-five, with gentleness correcting, paiduo, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In Second uh, Timothy three sixteen, this has to be one of my all-time favorite life verses for how to approach the Word of God. We all know it. All Scripture is theopneustos, God breathed and is profitable or valuable for teaching, reproof, correction, paiduo, or paideia, in righteousness. Training. Training in righteousness. And so, uh, again, taken from what you do with a little child in his training. And here, um, uh, we need this. Uh, I've... used to think that this one was a positive and this was a positive. Teaching and training were positive and reproof and correction were negative. But I think that actually the teaching is the positive one and the other three are kind of on the negative sounding side, especially when you're talking about paideia, um, necessary correction. Training and righteousness. You know, no pain, no gain. Nobody goes to the gym and says, well, this isn't going to hurt. Training always hurts. It may, not, it may be physical, it may be mental, Maybe just endurance or just some lactic acid, but there's pain involved when you're, when you're training because you have, to, um, you have to exert somehow. There has to be some exertion for there to be growth. In Titus 2, 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is one of my favorite chapters to harangue my church with, uh, Titus 2, um, because we have the power of womanhood older women to uh, help the younger women be of sound mind, literally sound mind them. And um, I read you a sentence fragment. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. What instructs us here or paiduos us is the grace of God. And, it, and it's, that's a really important thought. Okay, welcome back. Those of you who've been sleeping, watch this. Verse 11 says the grace of God is the subject. Verse 12 says it instructs us. The grace of God has appeared, and that's what God did for you when he saved you. And what it does it do? It instructs us to deny ungodliness. You don't deny your sin and, and, and become a good boy or good girl, and then you receive God's grace. You receive the grace of God as a broken, dirty sinner, and it motivates you because you have looked at this amazing grace it motivates you to serve him and that's the gist of 2 uh, 11 and 12 in titus hebrews 12 5 through 11 is our famous paideia paideo passage i think the word happens six or seven times here in this and i'll just read verse five you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons my son do not regard lightly the paideia of the lord nor faint when you're reproved by him the, this, is, this is the training, the discipline that is all through this passage, and it is corporal punishment when you read the passage, quoting Proverbs chapter 3. And then Revelation three nineteen. those whom I love, I reprove and paiduo. Reprove would be verbal. I think paiduo would be physical is how you would think about it. Therefore, be zealous and repent. All right, that's paideia. I hope I've shown you, I hope you've got a sense of how this word works. It's the word you would use for a paideon, a child in training. And then it's got all kinds of possible applications in the culture that would use even talk about Roman torture to, to admonish someone by the Romans, 
uh, whip not to step out of line and cause trouble, or just uh, education that you would have in an academic setting, Gamaliel. It's got a, a broad range of uses, but it's the necessary training from the picture of corporal training of children um, so that for basic life skills. Now let's go to Nuthesia. I'm excited about this word. This is um, the most uncomfortable thing you ever have to do, to Nutheteo someone. This is where you have to go to somebody and say, I think you're getting it wrong. Now, I'm going to equip everyone here to, uh, to do that tonight because I'm going to show you where the Bible says we're actually responsible for it. Did you ever, were you ever in a training situation or in, a, in an organization? I was in several organizations where there were standards, like the military, the scouts, whatever. There are standards, and we need to keep by the standards. Band, you know, hey, your white shoes need, to, need some shoe polish. Marching band, whatever. The organizational standards. You ever, you ever remember those people? You ever been in something where, like the hall monitor kind of person, that they were, oh, I was born for this. <laughs> Regulations! <laughs> I can help people be better. And they don't look at themselves. They don't see their weaknesses and stuff. They want to they go fix everyone else. And then um, my sin nature reacts to this person like, um, I don't know, like sodium and oxygen. <laughs> you know, um, drop some pure sodium in some, some water sometimes, see what happens. It's, I remember that from school. But, um, but when, when I get around, the way I'm wired, I'm like, everybody leave each other alone, live and let live, and, uh, and I'll overdrive that too much, right? That's my tendency. But when I see the regs ranger, we used to call the person with the regulations, and I'm, hey, I'm here to help you uh, keep the regulations. Your shoes are not lined up properly, and I have measured your window to make sure it's proper length. And all. That kind of person that's worried about that and thrives on helping other people just get to the standard. I always want to, um, to tell them that, that everything is wrong about what they're saying. You're wrong. Your regulations are wrong. Uh, you can go to hell. I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of my face and get out of my life, and I um, you know, do not wish you the best. That's how my sin nature reacts to that, and here's what's wrong with that, obviously. The person's probably right. <clears throat> Their regulation is what it is, and they're probably right that I'm out of, st- out of tolerance, and I don't want to hear it because I'm a sinner. I'm not the only one. I hope everybody gets that right. We're, this is how we are. But I call, we used to call them the regs rangers at the Hudson Valley School for Misdirected Youth. So, um, so this is a, a, a tender thing for me when someone brings a, a, a word of warning or admonishment, a new thesia that we're talking about. But it's a very important aspect of Christian spirituality, as we'll see. In Acts 20, Paul says, Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish each one with tears. Okay, I like that. I like that Paul is telling the whole group to watch it with their sin, to watch it with their attention to the word, to pay attention. He's warning them, admonishing them. Shotgun blasts, good. Individual laser strikes, not good. Hey, what's your sin that you're dealing with? You know, we're not going to do that, right? It's uncomfortable. But Paul is saying, I've been careful to tell each one, even through tears, that, to warn them um, about their spiritual lives. In Romans chapter 15, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. <gasps> and because there's goodness from God, the fruit of the Spirit, goodness, and knowledge from the Word the Spirit is teaching, so they're Spirit-filled Christians in Rome, that you're able to admonish one another. 
to warn, to correct, that, wait a second, are you saying that anybody can tell anybody, here's what I see and I'm concerned? Yeah. But it's because you have knowledge. It's because you have goodness. It's because this isn't an expression of your sin nature. Hey, I'm here with the regulations because it feels so good to tell you how wrong you are. But I'm actually here because I love you and this is really uncomfortable. And uh, boy, can I, I can just tell you all day how uncomfortable this is, but this is what I see. Do you see what I see? First Corinthians 4, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now these, see, that's what you do for beloved children. You give them a warning. This is probably verbal when Paul uses it in Ephesians 6, 4. It's verbal, corporal and verbal training. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. First Corinthians 10. Now these things happen, the verse 11, these things happen to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So our instruction is an admonishment, a warning. We see what the children of Israel did by going into idolatry. Are we at risk of idolatry? Oh, yes, because if you set your mind on earthly things in Philippians 3, then your God is your stomach. That's idolatry. It's very easy. You don't have to carve a a stick and bow down to it to be an idolater. And so we need to be warned and admonished. That's what this word is doing. Ephesians 6, 4, our, our verse, instruction of the Lord. Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So there's the negative, the warning, the the the. Hey, here's the line, and I see that this is a tendency, or, or don't step over the line, and just an encouragement about this in this negative sense, and then teaching would be the, affirmative, the, the positive things about God, so that every man is complete in Christ. See, here's the thing. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong, but nobody wants to lose out either. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. That's uncomfortable. It's a momentary light affliction to be told, hey, you're getting it wrong. But if someone does that for me, and I end up winning the race. I end up being successful. Jesus is glorified and honored by my choices after being course corrected. Then it was a painful moment, but it had its good effect. Surgery. Cut clean tissue, good tissue to get to bad so that the person heals and then they live a a better life. That's the idea. And it hurts. It's awful to do, but that's what the requirement is. As we'll read in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's Christian spirituality, to just be able to say, I think you're getting this wrong. What kind of person do you have to be to get this right, to tell someone, I think you're getting it wrong? You have to be humble. You have to know you're a sinner. You have to be able to say, I could be wrong. That's what humility requires. You have to say, here's what the scriptures say. How am I wrong? Help me understand this. I tell you what, and this is something to take away if you want to ever do this for somebody. They may never give you the satisfaction of knowing that your words hit home. You might see just a brick wall of, you are you to tell me. But if, if they heard your words and God is working in them, you may never hear back how it affected them. But you and I both know from our own experiences, it probably did. It probably will. And don't worry about getting the effect that you want to get, I mean, say the words for the effect you want, but don't worry if you don't see the effect because you don't know what God's going to do as you walk by the Spirit and tell the truth in love. In love, not in lust for self-promotion. In 1 Thessalonians five twelve through 14, I'll give you all of that, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you 
and all God's people said amen. Uh, come on, that's, we're not laughing after 8.15, Pastor. Um, we, we, we request that you appreciate those who diligent labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you uh, nuthesia, who give you a warning, a corrective warning, that word of admonition, okay, that you um, appreciate them and that you esteem very highly in love because of their work. Summary consequence of this work is live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly. See, the, the effect of the teaching from leadership will be peace with one another, which includes the responsibility to admonish the unruly. How are we going to have peace when you've got unruly people in the family? We're all going to take a little bit of responsibility and say, hey, institutionally, this is not how we operate. The church, Preston City Bible Church is remarkably free from a lot of troublemaking, but we don't have a lot of troublemakers. And it's not just that we've tried to scare them off before you showed up at, you know, seven o'clock tonight. But th- there have been times where we've had to say to people that w- were trouble, this is not how we are. We don't do this. And I'll show you why. And, and, and here, right here, First Thess 5, loving you means telling you this is out of line. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is a real blessing because he tells, Paul says, you take the mantle on yourself to admonish those that are out of line, atoktos, the unruly, or those that are out of line, not according to what, what we're supposed to be doing. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Loving each other is meeting people where they are with what they need. The person that's out of line needs to be told, hey, you need to get back in line. Who are you to say? Nobody. I'm just obeying Jesus. What does he think about it? That's really the only right response. One last one here, guys. One last little, little slide here. Second Thess 3. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. What kind of ego is that? This is the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I'm coming with the authority of Christ. So I'm not an apostle, but Paul is. So he says, this is how it is with those letters. That's why we put them in a book. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is not an unbeliever. This is somebody that won't obey the word of God. Like you, when you disobey God's word, this is somebody that continues to do it. And then we kind of see it. And it becomes kind of a thing. And uh, see this on TV? TV preachers do this. And uh, nobody tells them. But you don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish, correct, warn him as a brother. Titus 3, 10, and 11, reject a factious man after a first and second admonishment. Nuthesia. The divisive person that causes problems, see? We ought to develop a thing with the, with the deacons here, guys, that we, we say, okay, uh, who's got the first warning? Okay, I'll take the second warning. And then we all together say, and you're out of there, because it says... You have to reject a factious, a divisive, dangerous man. Now, why am I so callous about this? I'm not. It hurts my soul to ever have to say, I'm sorry, you can't be here. But think about it. If I'm a shepherd, and any of you are shepherds, and we have a flock that God wants us to protect, then that means that wolves need not apply. The the wolf takes the sheep, and the shepherd gives, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. David doesn't say, well, you know, that lamb got away. The lion takes his tax. 
David grabs the lion by his beard and kills the lion to save the sheep's life. And so that's, that's Paul in Acts 20, and that's going on here too. You have to do this kind of uh, policing of, of the, the household. Knowing that such a man is perverted, that means crooked. It doesn't mean sexually perverted, but it could mean that. Perverted and sinning, being self-condemned, the factious, divisive man. My strategy that I proposed to you on Sunday to do this uh, spirit-filled parenting was that it's a matter of wisdom because you have general statements, general commands to not provoke them to anger, but to bring them up or raise them in the fear or the, I'm sorry, I keep saying fear, the, um, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the, 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 the necessary corrective educating discipline and the warning, uh, and encouragement, admonishment to stay in line. This kind of instruction is very still general. You've looked at all the uses of these words. It's still real general, which means that you have a precept, you have a standard, you have something that you can always go back to, but you need wisdom to look at the specifics of how do I do this with this child in this instance, with this situation, with this parent-teacher conference or whatever you're doing, dealing with. And when you need wisdom, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what to do to get this right. We ask God for it in James chapter 1, verse 5. If you need wisdom and you become aware that you need wisdom, that is God prompting you to do what? To pray. And then when you say, God, I don't know how in this case to avoid provoking to anger and to bring this child up in this way. I don't know how to do this in this instance. Please help me. I need the wisdom. You are praying doubly God's will. He wants you to pray for wisdom and he wants you to do this thing. So you're asking for God to have his way. And when you see that you know exactly what to do, you give him all glory and praise because he answered your prayer because you are a spirit-filled parent walking by the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for eternal life, for the riches we have of your grace and the power of your Spirit to walk worthy of our calling and how we relate in our households. Father, there are people here with young children at home, like me. There are people here um, who uh, do not yet have young children, but that is in their near future. Father, there are people here who are old hands, who have done this and seen this and, um, and are observers and helpers and people on the periphery of the event uh, with such great wisdom and, and many resources. And Father, I just pray for this church family that we'll all be wise. Asking you for wisdom is what you want from us. We need wisdom in how to train these children because the most important two words in Ephesians 6, 4 are of the Lord, of the Lord. The Lord is really what this is about, that the children will know you and serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.